Chapter Nineteen of White Rose of Weary Leaf by Violet Hunt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Nineteen. The two men, left by themselves, settled into their chairs, and the host pushed the bottle along to Johnson with a friendliness that strengthened the latter in his resolve of protecting his friend from the machinations of the adventurous. His sense of proportion was almost neutralized by the melodramatic possibilities of the case he now felt called upon to deal with. "'You look nervous, Johnson. Almost hectic. Have some more port?' Johnson, who was not a wine-drinker, confusedly filled what he called a bumper. He wanted courage, like most conscientious but imaginative men. "'Dand, I want to talk to you about the young lady who lives here as your wife's companion.' "'Miss Stevens? Fire away. I like talking about her.' "'Too well. Why? She is surely a most interesting young woman.' "'Oh, nobody would deny that. I am interested in her myself, from a novelist's point of view. Pity your view is so circumscribed. From any other she is worth study.' "'Dand, you are difficult to—' It is not particularly easy, I admit, to instill doubts, suspicions, scandals about people I like and value into my unwilling ear. That is what you are trying to do, isn't it? I think I know the tone. And I know yours when you disapprove. It is painful to me to affront it. But what am I to do? I owe all loyalty to you. Not at all. You have my leave to betray me if you like. If it would make things pleasanter— Indeed, I expect it. I am prepared for every variety of broken faith. In me, Jeremy, the author looked genuinely distressed. In everyone, except perhaps in Amy. She is staunch to the little thin backbone. I observe that you speak of her as a lover might. But not as I might if I loved and were loved in return. He bent his projecting black brows on Johnson the mimic warrior who was affronting a giant of simplicity. "'Out with it, Johnson. I can see what you are driving at. Get on with your pretty tales against my poor little housekeeper. Here, let me fill your glass, you literary Judas, you.' "'Will you hear me, Jeremy? Shall we not talk straight as man to man?' "'Unfortunately, Johnson, I always talk to you as if you were a woman. As for expecting you to share my standards—' I should as soon expect a strong sense of honour in a lobster as in a literary man. I can't help it if you feel insulted. You couldn't write at all if you were stiff on certain subjects. You and your like have to keep an open mind. Maybe, replied Mr. Johnson placably. He was not so much poor-spirited as slavishly devoted to the man who was outraging his vanity. To you, Jeremy, with your semi-barbaric code— your crude and overbearing set of principles, derived, I suppose, from a historic ancestry, I can imagine that the economic and elastic standards that I work with must seem weak and inefficient. Still, I would have you know that but for my very strong sense of personal honour and what is due to myself, I should by now be married to this very Amy Stevens. His bomb failed. Mr. Dan took the announcement calmly. And so Amy Stevens was not due to you. What does that mean? That she refused you? I did not ask her. I could not. She and I were fellow secretaries to the late Sir Mervyn Diamond, and lived in his house together, and were the first to find his body when he had committed suicide. 
It was at three o'clock in the morning, and she was there alone with him. I was offered fifteen thousand pounds under his will, if I would do as he wished and make her Mrs. Johnson. It doesn't look much as if she had any hand in the making of that will. But I see the connection. I see the insinuation. Mr. Dan toyed with one of the old German claret glasses he was proud of, and broke it. Odd, isn't it, Johnson, that all the women about me have a price set upon their heads? You knew about my daughter, did you not, and the painful matter of her taking off? Dickinson was glad to take plain Dulce with fifty thousand. I paid that cheerfully to keep my Amy. She threatened to leave if I didn't make the young people happy. And now you tell me that you were offered fifteen thousand with Amy. A little less, but then she's the fairer woman, and yet you— you little yellow man, you jibbed at her. Both men rose. Both men were furious. Dand was pale. Johnson was yellow. He blurted out, You are not, Jeremy, I must say it, you are not treating me seriously. Don't be angry, Johnson, but sit down. No, I am not treating you seriously, but in the only way I can, and not break your head for you. As a person set up by the public to concern himself with the morals of private people, and encouraged to weave scandals about them. He sat down, laying his hand palm downwards on the fragments of broken glass that lay near his plate, with apparent complacency. "'I will ask you, Jeremy, once for all,' said the novelist, "'and then I shall have done my duty and can retire from this horrible wrangle, whether you did in effect know of Miss Stevens' connection with that notorious man, and the construction that was put on it.' I will only tell you, Johnson, in reply, that Miss Stevens actually left my service in Paris to go into his, and that I put my own construction on that act, as indeed on every other. Will you have more port? No? Then we will join the ladies. One word more, Dand. You are rushing full tilt on your own ruin. His voice rose to a squeak as the door of the room was opened by his impatient host, unexpectant of further controversy. "'Quiet, quiet,' said Dand, pushing him in again and holding the handle of the door. "'I say again, don't be the prey of a too fecund imagination. I beg your pardon. You are the best of fellows, Johnson, and it isn't your fault that you are an author. Indeed, you could have been nothing else. But you do seem to me to see everything through the spectacles of the court missionary at Bow Street.' I have taken your little tiresome excursions into the police court in good part. You happen to have told me something that I didn't know, and knowledge is power. Now I will tell you something, and tell it you in your own way. Amy has not fallen in love with me, does not think of love in connection with me, has therefore no motive for breaking up my happy home. You know I am not the kind of man who batters at a woman's affections. I leave women alone unless they meet me halfway. The reason I have not been able to accomplish Amy's ruin is this, that I have never for one moment succeeded in touching her imagination, any more than you did when you had the privilege of living for three months together in the house with her. Amy and I have been domesticated here for a year and a half, time to make a hole in a woman's heart if one is ever going to do it. "'But women are only one through their de-blanked imaginations. "'You ought to know that. "'Amy has seen too much of me from a domestic, unromantic point of view. "'The bloom is off me, through hardware of check-signing and wage-paying and heavy-fathering. "'She loves my child, lucky little beggar. 
Hollow, what is the matter?' For the door that he had been holding to, instead of catching the hasp while he finished his sentence, was pushed violently from the other side, and Amy's face appeared in the opening. "'Oh, Mr. Dand! Edith!' "'Yes, what?' "'The doctor's here. He called in. He expected it, it seems. He is attending to Lady Medrow.' "'What's the matter with her?' "'Fainting or something. It, it's nothing, I think.' "'I'll come,' said the master of the house dryly. "'Poor Edith. Her mother wants to rob her of the honours of her own particular scene.'" End of chapter 19 Read by Lisa Reichert